BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who says movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. Here is the captain. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today, we are still sipping on this Imperial Milk Stout from Angry Chair Brewing and Prairie Artisan Ales. This is called Adjunct Trail. This is a wonderful stout beer with notes of hazelnut coffee and coconut garage grade four and a quarter bottle caps out of five. Thank you to everybody who has contributed to the beer fund. As you heard a few weeks ago, the captain was announcing that the beer fund doesn't just fill up the fridge here in the garage. It also goes to helping out some very good causes like the Porchlight Project and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. If you want to help out the show and get something in return, make sure you go to truecrimegarage.com and check out the store page. It is hoodie season. There is a lot of great swag for you to check out on the store page. Yeah, B-W-E-R-R-U-N, beer run. If you're not subscribed, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Make sure that you tell a friend. Make sure you tap them on the shoulder. You go tappy, tappy, tappy. Hey, listen to True Crime Garage. It's awesome. You'll love it. And maybe tell them your favorite episode to start with. And Colonel, that is enough of the business. All right, everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. The FBI and Arizona police are still looking for 
a wanted man, Jason Derrick Brown, who is accused and responsible for a 2004 armed robbery that resulted in a homicide. This guy has been on the run for 18 years now. And as we discussed yesterday, Captain, we brought up the fact that we covered the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list back in 2017. And I pointed out that the list has changed considerably since then. There's only one individual still on the list that I believe was on the list when we discussed it five years ago. And in fact, our episode may have done some good because there was change to the list within days of us releasing our episode. So if you go to truecrimegarage.com and you check out our blog, uh, most weeks when we put out an episode, we put up a, a blog on that case. And you can get on there and you could submit a tip. You could ask a question about that week's shows. You could provide some information. A lot of times we get locals, people that are local to the case that we just covered, that they get on there with some somewhat insider information that you would kind of have to be a local to know. And they give us a little more details about the crime or the person that we might be looking for if it's a missing persons case. But if you go to our blog and you check back from 2017 on the most wanted episodes, you'll see that we had some good people get on there and comment. And one of the individuals was a Kylie from New Jersey who posted that just three days after we released our episodes, Walter Yavani Gomez was apprehended. He was somebody that was on the list. New Jersey gang member Walter Yavani Gomez wanted in connection with a brutal murder, was arrested without incident August 11th, 2017. They found him in Woodbridge, Virginia. And then a week later, a little more than a week later, Louis Macedo was apprehended August 26th in Mexico. And Sarah from Parts Unknown says, I like to think that it was because someone heard this episode and checked out the list. Yeah. And we're still waiting on our checks from the FBI. Yeah. Yeah. There would have been rewards in both of those cases. And so good to see that the quick apprehension of some of these people that were on the list, as we stated yesterday, Jason Derrick Brown is no longer on the list, but they're going to have a spot opening up. So I'm hoping that they use the excuse of this movie to place him back on the list and to really put him back into the eyes of the media. And it was this case being in the media that led to a bunch of sightings. You know, everybody wants to know where could this guy be? Where is he? There were several sightings. We mentioned yesterday that he speaks fluent French and there were possible sightings in Canada. He's also somebody that was raised in the Mormon community. And for a while, at least there were they were getting sightings of Jason Derrick Brown in the greater Salt Lake City area. Investigators even went so far to say publicly that they believe that Jason Derrick Brown may have been hiding in plain sight among the Mormon community under an assumed identity. And then there were locations as far away as Quebec and Thailand that have been referenced in the Jason Derrick Brown case as well. One thing that I found in my research here, Captain, that I've found fascinating was an article from April 20th, 2020 from the Richland source. And the title of their article was authorities 
Arizona fugitive sought for murder may have been spotted in Mansfield, Ashland, Ohio area. There's a picture of Jason Derrick Brown in the article, and the article is coming out of Mansfield, Ohio, and it says authorities are seeking an Arizona man sought for murder that has possibly been spotted in the Mansfield, Ashland area of Ohio. Jason Derrick Brown, 50, he would have been 50 in April of 2020 of Phoenix, Arizona headlines this week's list of most wanted fugitives compiled by the Northern Ohio violent fugitive task force and Richland County division for the week of April 20th. Brown is five foot 10 inches tall, 175 pounds approximately with green eyes and blonde hair. He is wanted for murder and armed robbery in Phoenix. Authorities did not say where or when he may have been spotted in this Richland County area of Ohio, but urge citizens to not engage with him, but call for help immediately. Well, and based off his age, I mean, at this point, his hair might not be blonde. It might be gray. And and you would think that the stress of running from law enforcement for the last 14 years would maybe add to those gray hairs. But I'm going to just put this out there. <laughs> A con man Maybe the job gets a little easier as you get older because you wouldn't be suspecting an older gentleman to try to con you. Well, and let's let the experts weigh in on the possibilities of where he could be, too. So going back to Lance Leasing, Special Agent Lance Leasing, who was the agent in charge of this manhunt and portions of the investigation that led to this manhunt. When he's asked, he was asked, you know, not just where could he be, but also, do you think that Jason Derrick Brown may have committed suicide, that maybe he's no longer alive? And Leeson goes on to say, quote, it's a possibility. There are some family members that will and friends that say that they think that happened. Leeson goes on to say, quote, it's a possibility. There are some family members that will and friends that say that that is what they think happened. He goes on to say, I don't know why he fled for a while. He planned the flight. The agent says that he believes Jason Derrick Brown was ready for this. They, that he could run at a moment's notice, which is what he did obviously. And so he said that based off of that information, that he does not believe that suicide would be something that Jason would do. And he says, I'm not a psychologist, but he doesn't want to get into the minds of all of that stuff too much, but he says, if you think of yourself that much, that highly of yourself is what he's saying. Suicide is probably not at the top of the list of things that he's going to do. Well, we know what he got from the robbery, but we also don't know what other robberies he might've been involved in. So we don't really know how much, like, like they said, FBI, the FBI believes that this individual could have ran at any time and maybe was planning for that. How long was he planning that for? And how much money did he have stashed back to do so? And did he have other resources that he already had set up? Did he set up other accounts? Did he already come up with an alias? Did he already establish an identity, alternative identity? These are, I mean, he was a con man for so long, and I don't believe that Jason was a dumb individual. I believe he, he did have a, 
a brain in him. Well, a, a big enough brain that he was able to con people out of money right. and continually steal from people and commit fraud over and over again. And one thing that I thought was interesting, too, is that the reporter asked the agent, well, what about plastic surgery? Do you think that that's something that he, Jason Derrick Brown, may consider to change his look very dramatically? The agent's answer is, look, the pictures we have of him are old, so he's going to change look and appearance just in age alone, but also um, that that plastic surgery was something that Jason Derrick Brown may have discussed with family at some point, and that that would, of course, change potentially change his look dramatically, right. and that, yes, Jason would have every reason to want to continue to hide from the FBI and hide from the authorities. So he of course does not want to look anything like the pictures out there, the pictures of him that are out there. Another thing that's very fascinating to me is like I was saying before, this guy gets his validation from outside sources, but he did live a pretty normal life up until some point when there was a switch that was flipped. And so could an individual go back to that? Again, you see a guy just working a regular job, driving a pickup truck, you know, changed his hair color, maybe changed his nose, and you go, that that doesn't it doesn't look like the same guy, he doesn't act like the same guy. And maybe that's why we haven't caught him yet. But it's also super fascinating because he's not the only individual in the family that's missing. That's correct. His father's been missing for even longer than Jason has been missing. So that then that makes you wonder, was he able... And, and let, let's just go over his father's story real quickly. It seems like his father was a little bit of a con man, got into some gambling and things of that nature. Maybe even some gang activity. Right. And, and so some people go, well, he's, he's not alive anymore. He was taken out by people. And then other people say, well, he's on the run from those people, not law enforcement, but maybe gangs or, or organized crime. So is it possible that he had some contact with his father and was, they, they're on the run together? Yeah, it's really interesting because his sister, of course, is portrayed in the movie American Murder and, and plays a large role in this overall story, this true crime story. But she's on record as saying that she believes, or at least at one time did believe, that the disappearance of Jason Derrick Brown's father and Jason himself being on the run were were completely tied and completely connected. And she believed that it could be connected in one of two ways. Either the father, their father has stayed on the run successfully for all of these years. And somehow Jason learned how to stay a ghost based off of his father being a ghost or the other way that it could be connected in her mind was she said that, there are days that she thinks that maybe Jason Derrick Brown is responsible for the disappearance of his father. That, 
And the way that she worded it, Captain, and her tone doesn't make it sound like he helped his father to disappear in this sense, that maybe he killed his father and made him disappear. Right. That right. The the murder of the armed guard is not his first murder. Look, we know he's capable of a heinous murder. Does that make him capable of murdering his father? Absolutely. And then is that the only two? Or there are other murders that are involved because of Jason Brown constantly trying to con people and probably getting into some sticky situations. And maybe sometimes murdering somebody is the way out of that sticky situation. The FBI has also stated that they have reason to believe that at some point, and they don't give it clear information. Like The more the public knows, the more the public has the chance to help you guys here. But they state that they have information that at some point while Jason Derrick Brown was on the run, that he likely visited people he knew in the Salt Lake City area. But then an agent goes on, and this is interesting too. This is something for, I hope the listeners' ears perk up a little bit and they pay extra attention to this. Because because again, our purpose of us covering Jason Derrick Brown, again, is for the purpose of apprehending him, just like when we covered the list five years ago. But an agent says, quote, it's very hard for individuals to change the way they live, the way they behave. This is a guy who stays in shape, likes fitness, likes to look good. We are hoping that he is seen at a nightclub or a fitness club. And then they go on to say that he, Jason Derrick Brown, is an outdoorsy type as well, so he would be very comfortable outdoors. Well, one of the people listening to our coverage of The Most Wanted List in 2017 was writer and director Matthew Gentile, who is responsible for putting out this fine film, American Murder, which is in theaters now. I'll give a little description of the movie here, Captain. It's obviously based on a true story. They say this riveting thriller follows murderer and American fugitive Jason Derrick Brown, a charismatic con man bankrolling his extravagant lifestyle through a series of scams. Jason Derrick Brown is played by Tom Pelfrey. On Brown's trail is Lance Leasing, a dogged FBI special agent played by Ryan Philippe. Lance Leasing is determined to put Brown behind bars. When Brown's funds run low and his past catches up with him, he plots his most elaborate scheme yet, pitting himself against the special agent in a deadly game of cat and mouse and becoming the most unlikely and elusive fugitive on the FBI's most wanted list. We'll get to that interview with Matthew right after this quick ear break. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. You'll step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Use your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. And customize your very own luxurious estate island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. Collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. And you can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Joining us here in the garage for the very first time, we have screenwriter and director Matthew Gentile, who is here to talk about his new true crime movie that is coming out based all on a true story or mostly on a true story. And we'll get into reasons why here in a bit. Matthew, introduce yourself to the audience. Tell us a little bit who you are and tell us about this wonderful film that's coming out. Hi, Nick. Hi, Captain. Thank you so much for having me. Um, as you said, my name is Matthew Gentile. I'm a filmmaker. Um, this is my f- first feature film, American Murderer. It's a true crime thriller about Jason Derrick Brown, charismatic con man who became the FBI's most unlikely and elusive top 10 fugitive. It'll be coming out in theaters October 21st on demand and digital October 28th. And I'm here to talk about it with this movie the case it's based on and uh with you and your with you and the captain and your incredible audience and i'm excited to connect i'm a fan of the podcast so i'm very grateful to you guys for having me on this will be my first true crime podcast as we're recording it so <laughs> i'm excited to, to chat with you well welcome in and we covered a little bit of the jason Derek brown story years ago when we explored the fbi's top 10 most wanted fugitive list with our listeners. And at the time, Jason Derrick Brown was one of the criminals that was on that list. The FBI was seeking this individual, and this is very much a an FBI case as well as a local case for the local police there in the greater Phoenix, Arizona area. Now, this is still a bit of an unsolved case because Jason Derrick Brown, while he has been removed from the top 10, he is still a wanted fugitive. The FBI and authorities are still looking for him because he is wanted for murder and other crimes. How do you, how does a Matthew Gentile, how do you get 
involved in this story? How, how did you become aware of Jason Derrick Brown, his crimes? And, and then you have to, to write this, you have to almost live in the mind of this individual, or at least have him on your mind for quite some time. Well, first off, it's a great question. Thank you for asking me that, uh, Captain Nick. Um, the way I became, the story came to me was when I was between the ages of 10 and 14, uh, before I wanted to be a filmmaker, I wanted to be an FBI agent. So I used to have a habit of going on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list on their website and looking at it to see, you know, if I could help them catch a fugitive for the reward money. Uh, it was a foolish, naive dream I had as a kid. Um, I learned about the top 10 list from watching the movie Silence of the Lambs. And then it's less good sequel, Hannibal, where they showed the FBI top 10 list on a computer. So my 10 year, my 11 year old brain ran with that and would go on the list and look at the fugitives. And on the FBI top 10 list, as you two know from your episode and your coverage on the FBI top 10 list that there's a lot of there's a sea of pretty menacing mean faces you know you've got Whitey Bulger Osama bin Laden and quite sophisticated high level and high operating criminals and then you have on that list this surfer dude from Southern California with spiky blonde hair who looks so much like Sean Penn that as I'm sure you know from what you've read on about the case Sean Penn's body double was arrested twice in the years Jason's been missing so you know the first thing I think when anyone sees any image of Jason Derrick Brown, regardless of my film or before it, you know, they think this guy, you know, it's always been, there was always a little bit of that. So his face stood out to me age 14. Uh, when I, I was 14 years old, when the crime was committed, he became a top 10 fugitive a few years later in 2007, but I remembered his face on the, on the FBI.gov site. So cut to, you know, we're about 12 years later, I graduated from film school at AFI American film Institute. And, you know, I was lucky to short films I had made. I made a Western and a film about a rock star losing his hearing. Those two films were playing a lot over the festival circuit. I was getting a lot of attention for them. And I was trying to figure out what would be my first feature as a filmmaker. And you know, that's kind of always the big thing when someone, <laughs> when you graduate film school or you have a short film that does well, as everyone says, what's your feature? And I was kicking around a couple different ideas attached to various projects. I've always liked films in the crime, thriller, drama, space, you know, the movie that made me want to be a filmmaker is a classic true crime film, Dog Day Afternoon. You know, I'd read that when I was 12 and became obsessed with it. My father showed it to me and I, my mom bought me the screenplay as a Hanukkah gift because they used to sell screenplays on street stands in New York City. And she saw me eyeing it and she bought it for me for $10. And that was the first time I read a script. So for me, I always loved films about antiheroes, um, you know, criminals, you know, for me, like a lot of my kids, my age were into Pokemon and, uh, you know, whatever it was at the time for me, it was gangsters, con men, criminals. <laughs> that was, that was my, that was, those are my Pokemon. So, you know, I'm, I'm out of school. I'm figuring out what my next, you know, what my first feature is going to be. And I'm storyboarding for a shoot. I was shooting a commercial at the time and I'm, I'm drawing on my images. And whenever I storyboard, I, uh, I always have something on in the background. And usually it's a, it's a true crime docuseries of some kind. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, Jason's face popped onto my TV screen, hmm. the same. And I just all like, and it had been 12 years since I'd maybe even thought of him or her, you know, it, but it just, it came rushing back. I just saw it and I was like, that's weird. And so I started watching it, neglected my storyboards. And I said to myself, Oh my God, this guy is still missing. 
he's still out there. How, what happened? How did that? <laughs> and so I became, you know, pretty enraptured. And, you know, I have a mentor named Billy Ray, who's a top screenwriter. He's written films like Captain Phillips and The Hunger Games. And, you know, he's a great, great writer and great guy. And he said to me, like, his rule of if he should write a script is if I don't, if I wake up thinking about the project, that's the project I should do. It's a great barometer, I think, for any, you know, anyone in any field. And I, uh, I couldn't stop thinking about this movie. I just, you know, watching the story about Jason, but you see, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. For me, the movie is as much about Jason Derrick Brown as it is about the web and the people who knew him and who loved him. And, you know, those are the various lenses through which we see Jason throughout the film. So for me, you know, at first it was like, okay, cool. This has a lot of elements of like a fun, pulpy crime thriller, you know, an armored car heist, you know, a con man. I love con men stories. But what ultimately became the emotional engine for me and my way in as a filmmaker, you know, because to me, American Murder is a movie about family. That's the theme. Uh, every movie to me has a theme. And for American Murder, it's family. Um, but, you know, that came through, you know, multiple rewrites and drafts. And so, you know, basically the, the process of how it went about getting made, I'm assuming you from your question, you want to know about that as well. You know, the the way it came from an idea of, okay, here's this guy, Jason Derrick Brown, who interested me when I wanted to be an FBI agent to how does this become a movie? At first, I began writing the script, you know, on spec, which means just, you know, on my own, on my own time, thinking maybe, you know, I could try to sell the script because it felt ambitious for a first time director, you know, to do. It's a big, you know, pretty big movie for that. But as I started writing it, I just began to research the case. You know, I started, I did begin interviewing some people. I'm not going to name exactly who, because I don't want to out them, but I did interview people who knew Jason and were associated or associates of associates. And I began to gather a lot of intel and information in addition to reading everything I could get my hands on that was out there, which on this case, there is a lot of stuff. Um, so I became pretty obsessed. I resembled Jake Gyllenhaal's character in Zodiac, just wanting to know everything I could. And then I began to write a script. Um, and, you know, the first versions of the script we're actually like just really going with Jason's point of view. But what it ultimately became as the movie progressed was an ensemble film where it's really about seeing Jason through all these various perspectives. And, you know, we, um, you know, at first the way, the thing that really got it going was I made a proof of concept short of the film. I shot one scene from it, which was actually the climactic SWAT invasion. Um, in the movie, I did it completely differently. And I shot a you know five minute scene. We had this great actor Jonathan Groff in it, who was attached at the time. And once that uh, short went around, and his show Mindhunter dropped, a lot of people were you know interested in it. And this company, Traveling Picture Show, and G two companies, Traveling Picture Show, ran by Kevin Madison, Carissa Pafel, and uh, GG Films, ran by Gia Walsh. These three producers, at various points in the process, came together and banded, and they really backed me and supported me and really loved the script and were, you know, helped me develop it into something much better than it initially was. <laughs> and, you know, we came together and we made this thing in the, at the height of the pandemic. So it was quite a journey, but, you know, at the end of the day, it was really Jason's story. And it began by just seeing the image of his face on this top 10 list, you know, to really trying to see him as a full fleshed out character um, who I could talk a lot about. And you were kind enough to send us a screener. So we've been able to view it before this, our sit down here today. And of course the movie is about Jason Derrick Brown, his crimes, but it's also about 
his family and then his fugitive status. So tell everybody about your, you know, you did a lot of research on this guy and tell us about Jason Brown and what you learned about him in your research. Well, Jason, you know, there's, as I said earlier, there's a lot written about him and part of the you know, challenge of making a true crime film. I would consider my genre, it's true crime, but I do true crime fiction, meaning that this is based on a true story. There was a lot of research, but also in the process of making a movie, one, you know, a director and screenwriter and actors too, everybody has to take creative liberties to make it, you know, work as a film. Um, so, you know, what's in there, there's the, the line between fiction and truth is quite blurry in a movie like this. But, you know, there was an extensive research process while I was writing the screenplay. What I learned about Jason Derrick Brown was, you know, and a lot of this is in the film or vaguely covered in the film, um, you know, is that he was a con man. Um, you know, first and foremost, that was his profession. You know, Jason was not a guy who liked to work a nine to five. You know, he was somebody who, you know, would, would come into a neighborhood with lots of toys, Cadillacs, BMWs, you know, and he presented himself really as like a rich frat guy, you know, um, in a, in a suburban neighborhood. And we show that in the film as there's a relationship with his, his landlady love interest played by Adina Menzel and, uh, her son. Um, you know, so he's, he's somebody who had that larger than life personality, would buy you a drink at the bar, you know, <laughs> would take you out, you know, it just was a lot of fun to be around that kind of charismatic guy, you know, of his crimes were pretty petty for the most part, bank fraud, things of that nature, you know, but he was always basically traveling around place to place, never staying in one place for too long so that he could, you know, stay off the trail of creditors and people who were on to him. As his crimes escalated, his his pet his petty cons, you know, he started to basically lose the ability to do it. He, he became desperate in his own mind and decided to rob an armored truck, and that became, you know, what was the central crime that put him on the FBI's top ten list. So, you know, his upbringing, which there is quite a bit written about, and one of the you know the craziest mysteries of the movie is also about how his father, um, who was a con man himself, um, you know. The, the, the background of Jason's interesting because he actually came from very, it looked like on the surface, a strict Mormon upbringing. They were a Mormon family, the Browns, but um, Jason's father was a con man himself and had criminal ties. And he, his father disappeared off the grid in 1994, 10 years before Jason did. So there's a bit of an odd mystery around that. In terms of the research process, there was a lot written about these characters you know, which was my main source of information was from, there were a lot of documentaries made about them. There were a lot of articles. There was even a book at one point. So there's a lot, there are a couple books. So there was a lot of information out there, which, you know, I read and used. And I, like I said, I did interview people. There's a couple of characters in the film who are what we call composite characters, meaning they're based on one or two <laughs> folks, some of whom were interviewed to give me as much information about Jason as possible. But then I ultimately take all that information of which there is a lot. And there are some amazing true things that happen that unfortunately can't make the movie. I, I find doing research extremely important. One key part of my research process I will can talk in depth about was my um I have I was very lucky to work with a detective named Adam Richardson who actually runs a podcast called uh, the Writer Detectives Bureau. Writers Detectives Bureau. Um, he consults a lot of screenwriters and directors in Hollywood. And he actually I'm sure you guys are aware of the Jesse James Hollywood case. Mm-hmm. Yes. He actually was the detective who worked that case. And I believe he arrested Jesse James Hollywood. If not, 
had a key role in, in getting him back here. So he was, he worked the case of Jesse James Hollywood and he worked very closely with me and gave me a lot of incredible and valuable insight into the police procedural process. Um, because, you know, we were not able to consult with the FBI on the film because the FBI, it is an open case still, um, even though Jason was taken off the top 10 list, it's, the case is still open. Jason technically still is reported missing. So, you know, it, the FBI can't co cooperate with filmmakers or authors on a case on an open investigation, but, you know, we were able to use the FBI in the film and all that. But yeah, this detective Adam Richardson was phenomenal. He really helped me. You know, make sure I, it's, our process was interesting. He read a couple drafts of the screenplay. And after I consulted with him, <laughs> I definitely made some things better and more accurate. Um, but while I was even on set shooting, you know, when we were staging the crime scene and all those elements, I was showing Adam, you know, I was FaceTiming him from the set. <laughs> I couldn't have him there because it was COVID and our, the amount of people we could have on set was limited. But he was facing me for all the things like the SWAT invasion, you know, to the car, to, you know, to, to every police element in the script, the, the stakeout and the uh, storage units, all those, you know, action set pieces. This gentleman, Adam Richardson, was very generous with his time and really helped me, uh, you know, know as much about police procedure as I could so that we were portraying it accurately and authentically as possible. It's interesting, though, too, because I look at somebody like Jason Derrick Brown and I, I cannot help but wonder, it was it the divorce that spawned this kind of wild behavior that led into a lot of criminal activity, petty leading up to this execution style murder, or was it his personality that led to his divorce or, you know, the, the chicken or the egg, we don't know what happened first right. or what led to one thing led to another, but yeah, he has a very bizarre upbringing to me, almost, you know, raised by, by a criminal like father, but also goes off on this missionary adventure. And he's talked very highly of by a lot of people that were very close to him. And then he is accused of this execution style murder, which I mean, this is one of the most cold blooded homicides that I can think of. Right. Like, right. Yeah. Jason Derrick Brown knew he was killing someone that day when he woke up and when he went to the AMC theater that day. The, th the thing that is so horrific about this to me is he didn't know the individual's name. It didn't matter the individual's name. It didn't matter who that person was. He was going to rob that armored car that day and he was going to flee. And whoever happened to be holding the bag was going to be catching bullets from Jason Derrick Brown. And in your movie, one thing that I want to give you big kudos on here, Matthew, is I've read pretty detailed descriptions of that crime. Right. The way that it is in your movie, I don't know that anybody could have done any better of a job playing that out for the viewers. I mean, it. I think you got it as accurate as you as one possibly could. Well, thank you for saying that, you know, and like I said, you know, just like what you guys do in making true crime podcasts, you know, research and authenticity is important, you know, and you want to capture it as authentically as possible, you know? Um, yeah. And that, that, you know, there was a lot to research because it was a very, it was actually a much more sophisticated crime than it looked like, you know, cause exactly. It was very calculated, um, is the word I would use to describe the whole thing. 
you know, he scoped out the right alleyway. He scoped out the, you know, he knew what street he could go. And, you know, look, um, you know, I, as a filmmaker, I find it's very, I cannot make a movie with passing judgment on any character I'm portraying, you know, whether it's the antagonist, the protagonist, and in this case, you know, your antagonist is your protagonist in this movie. Um, you know, and on the record, what Jason did is a horrendous, horrific act as you, you know, as you pointed out, mm-hmm. you know, for me, the power of a film and cinema is that you can look at characters like Jason Derrick Brown and put them under a light. So, you know, you could shine a light on a dark soul and ultimately try to, you know, without being sentimental, move the audience to understand who this person was. I'm not saying like, and I'm not saying feel sympathy for, but help them see him for who he was and what he meant to be. Because you're right, this man did a really horrifying, monstrous act. He was also loved by many people. And so that's what the movie ultimately is grappling with is like, you know, are we capable (laughs) of having, you know, of moving an audience to a place of compassion, understanding for someone who is a soul someone who's rotten to the core and did something so heinous. And so that's what I'm, you know, as a filmmaker, and I'm not saying you can, and I'm not saying you can't, I'm just asking the question with the movie. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's what the, that's the ultimate central question of like, why, you know, when people ask me in interviews, why did you want to make this film? What made you want to tell this story? And that was it for me you know, is, can you take someone like Jason and, and moving on? And you look, we grew up in the era, at least my generation did of, you know, the TV shows Breaking Bad and the Sopranos, you know, <laughs> and you watch Tony Soprano and he's, a, he's a monster, he's a sociopath, but you kind of can't help but love him a little. And so, or same with, you know, Walter White and Breaking Bad. So I, I think, you know, film and TV is becoming more and more sophisticated in this way, especially with all the shows that are out there and, and the books and, and the true crime boom that we live in right now, you know, thankfully, um, you know, in, the, in this true crime boom, it's, it's asking the questions of why, why did someone do this? And I think, you know, there's a lot to unpack with this character. Um, I don't know if that answered your question. I think somebody like a Jason Brown lands on this top 10 list from the FBI for a multitude of reasons, but I, I personally believe that it's probably because the trail for the FBI on Brown went completely cold because he's not placed on that list until three years after the crime. Part of it, I think, is the crime itself. Mm -hmm. When you really try to dissect the elements of that crime and and the crime that he committed, one, robbing an armored car is not common. That's not a common crime at all. Bank robbery is far more common than robbing an armored car. Now you rob an armored car and what you see traditionally, typically in those types of crimes, they are much more violent than a bank heist. Bank heist, the majority of them, it's some guy passing a note to the teller. That's the way that the majority of them work. Most of it, these armored car robberies involve a high level of violence. And in this case, murder and Jason Brown ambushed this, this gentleman, this guy was a guy just like the three of us who woke up this morning, went off to their work, went off to their job. We want to do a good job. We want to knock it out of the park here today. But at the end of the day, our number one goal is to go home to our homes and to our families. And this individual was not able to do so because of the, the cold calculated mind of somebody like Jason Brown. I mean, we're talking about Robert Keith 
uh, Palomares, who was only 24 years old, did not even get a chance to pull his firearm when he's attacked by Brown because Brown ambushes him. Brown manages to get off six shots. He's at close enough range. We're not talking about a highly skilled marksman here. We're talking about a guy that ambushed and, and snuck up on this guy. And, and the closer he got, the faster he was pulling that trigger. He hits Palomares six t- five out of six shots hit above the neck on our victim. And that's because Brown knows that, that he is going to be wearing bulletproof vest and he's going to go for parts on the, the would-be victim that cannot be covered, cannot be protected. This, unfortunately, this individual didn't stand a chance. He, he didn't have a chance. There was no fight because he was ambushed by Brown. And then Brown, this is how cold he is. Ice cold. He, he has to walk up to the body and pull and tug on the money bag to get it out of, to pry it from the fingers of our victim here. To the point that he drops the bag, he drops the gun, and then he picks both of them up before before he flees. But th- I, and I think I think when you really kind of dissect this crime, and there's a lot of thought put into it, there has to be. It, it's so calculated. You examine the mind and the personality of the type of criminal that would carry out this type of crime, and you see just how dangerous this person is to the general public as a whole. Because he does not think of people the way that you and I think of people. He does not think of life or this earth the way that the rest of us do. He sees this as a grid, as a giant chessboard. And there's a lot of pawns out there. And as far as he's concerned, there's very few kings, knights, and queens. And he's one of the kings in his own mind. And the rest of us are just fodder. We're, we're, we're pawns to be dismissed, to be done away with so that he can keep going. And that, and that always makes him dangerous. And then on top of that, while he's on the run, that makes him extremely dangerous as well, because we've seen what he, he will resort to in this situation. And now that he's on the run, who knows what he's capable of. Yeah. It definitely makes Jason Derek Brown, a very dangerous individual and people that think they might know where he's at should be very careful and contact law enforcement immediately. The one thing that the film doesn't get into dive into too much, but I did want to get your opinion on because you, you, you were, you were busy writing and exploring this man and his crimes and his, and his personal life for such a long period of time. You know, one thing that a couple things that he did that were, very interesting, I thought, while he was on the run. At first, the police and the FBI, even though they knew who who had committed this crime, they didn't come out and publicly announce that because right. they thought that the the manhunt would change. There would be a giant shift in the manhunt and in Jason's actions and behaviors based off of the fact that he is under the assumption that nobody knows that he did this. He may know that pe- he's, people are looking for him or he knows he's on the run, but for a period of time, he doesn't know that they know that he's the one that committed this crime. At some point, they have to publicly announce that, and I think it was about a month or so after um, the crime was committed, and then a, a few years later, he his name is added to this 10 most wanted list. But Well, actually, just to... Um, just to- a little correction there. So what what actually happened was in no, 
So the murder was committed November 29th, and they figured it out quite fast uh, because of the fingerprint left on the bike. They knew it was Jason, mm-hmm. or they knew Jason was at least very much involved, right? On December 6th, I believe, Jason was staying at his sister's house, and the Phoenix police did have a press conference where they released Jason's image from taken from the gun store, which became his top 10 fugitive image. And that was put on TV and somebody, nobody knows who, called or let Jason know that they were looking for him. And that was how he was able to get out before the police and FBI stormed his sister's house. So he was aware that he was one and that's part of how he was able to get away and then he actually drove his car down to allegedly down to san diego um they thought he was going to go across the border and then he's apparently got because they he swiped his credit card at a gas station near the san diego mexico border and then allegedly though did not cross they had apbs out for him and disappeared into the ether and they found his car in portland oregon now nobody knows if he actually went to portland oregon right he could have not Mm. Um, right. Yeah, that's another one of the many, many unsolved mysteries. You know, you could have paid somebody to send the car up to Portland, but um, you know, but that's so that's just you know something to keep in mind was they did they did release um, to the press, and that was considered, I think, by many people to be a huge mistake to release his image to the press when they did. But you know, they had their reasons, I'm sure, and that's uh, that's that. But yeah, obviously, we can only track so much of his movements. Uh, if we could track them all, we wouldn't be having this conversation, right? Right. Yeah. Interesting to me. I goes down to San Diego, gives the impression that he might be headed for Mexico, right. and then finding, and then some trace of him in Portland, Oregon, gives the impression of maybe he's going the other route to Canada. Right. You know, it's like you know he's a con man. You know, that's who Jason is at the core. To me, always was a con artist. How do con artists get you? They prey on one's confidence, right? So, you know, I think he, you know, was, and look, he was also coached in the art of disappearing. You know, part of, you know, the storyline with his father is that he would, you know, they, the father used to say to the kids, apparently growing up, if if I'm gone for more than, you know, two hours or 48 hours, get rid of everything. So, you know, this was someone who knew how to, you know, probably work under the black mark, criminal market, get fake IDs, whatever you needed to get on out and, and disappear, you know? So it was pretty, he was pretty sophisticated in that way as a criminal. And then he's remarkably unsophisticated in other ways as a criminal. So I think that's what, again, makes him so interesting. I don't want to back you into the corner here, Matthew, but uh, <laughs> where okay. do you think back, uh, I'll get out? <laughs> where, where do you think he, where do you think he is? You know, we had in the production office of the movie, we had a running list on the window of all the places he might be. Um, you know, for a while, I I have thought he was out of the country. That was always my guess during the writing of the film. I think there's a very good chance he's not alive anymore. I think that's highly possible. I don't know if that's true, but I think that could be the case. If he is, then he's still running. My guess is somewhere either in like Australia or Southeast Asia would be my would be my best. Not you know, I guess somewhat educated guess, but it's a big mystery. You know, but I don't think he could be in the country. I mean, he was allegedly spotted in Salt Lake City in two thousand eight, where we filmed the movie, and that was an area where he had tremendous ties to with Salt Lake City. So I mean, there were people on our crew who knew him. Uh, 
who, who were very close to people who knew him. There was, you know, he, but he had, you know, when we were scouting pawn shops and gun stores for the movie, there were people who would ask about me like, Oh yeah, I knew, I knew Jason Derrick Brown. Um, so there were, you know, he, he, he had a lot of ties, um, to many different areas. You know, he also, Jason's fluent in French. I think he also speaks, spoke Spanish. So, you know, that's a lot of the world <laughs> that he could get through. Well, and so you say, if he is, in your opinion, if he's still alive, probably outside of the country somewhere, if he's not still alive, what's your speculation there? Are we, do we think, because his attitude, his personality to me does not in any shape or form suggest suicide. Right. Me neither. What I, what I think could be a possibility here if he's not still around would be, look, you can only con so many people until until you con the wrong person and retribution takes place. Right. Um, right. And that, that's kind of where, where my, my thoughts go to, but I mean, let's, he might not be on the top 10 list anymore, but there's still a $200,000 reward out for right. his, for his capture. And that's a lot more money than what he made off in his armored car heist. Right. Well, that's the other thing, you know, people say a lot is, you know, $60,000 isn't that much money. So how did he get out and go about? How did he disappear? Like, that's not a ton of money. You know, it's not like in Breaking Bad when Walter White has all that money to go disappear or, you know, Bob Odenkirk, right? Or better, you know, Saul Goodman has all that money to disappear. This is a different scenario. So, yeah, you know, there there's endless speculation on where he can be. And, you know, to be honest, uh, you know, I got... Uh, like I don't feel backed into a corner by that question at all. I think it's a totally legit question um, that I've been asked before, you know, but I never really, it's never been something that's been that much on my mind, you know, as a filmmaker, I, you know, felt like what, for me, the movie ends when he's gone, you know, and that's it. And that's kind of where the story ends. You know, I would be, of course, if someone updated me and told me where he was or what actually happened, I would definitely be interested to hear, but you know, the film wasn't so much about that to me because look, even though, and now maybe we'll call this a spoiler section. So for your listeners, if you haven't seen the movie, maybe watch it before you listen to this very small part of the interview, you know, maybe like for me, the movie is about a loss of humanity in a human as well. This, this man really eroded his own humanity to get this money. And he, by the end of the film, yes, he does get away with the crime in theory. But what kind of life is that? You know, he's, he, he can never talk to anyone he knows or loves again. He has to disappear. He has to, you know, he can't go out much, right? He has to kind of stay, you know, so it's like at the end of the day, this man like has disappeared and it's, it's as if he is dead. You know, the act of him sending a box of all of his things to his sister, you know, is in a way saying goodbye forever. Jason Derrick Brown, as far as you know him, no longer exists right? He's like erased his own identity pretty much. So, you know, while it is definitely not, you know, it's a, it is a tragic ending and I think it's a tragic film. You know, the film is tragedy at, at the core in terms of what how the storyline plays out. So yes, he does get away, but this is, this is no happy ending right, for anybody involved. And I think that he, um, he disappears.
want to thank everybody for joining us here in the garage join us every week make sure you subscribe to the podcast one of the perks of having a true crime podcast is we got to watch the screener of american murderer and that's this week's recommendation yes you can find that recommendation and many more on our recommended page on our website truecrimegarage.com go see american murderer it's in select theaters now or If you want to stay home and watch it on the comfort of your own couch, it is available on demand, streaming on demand as well. That's American Murderer. Thank you to Matthew Gentile for joining us this week in the garage. And check us out again next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't let go. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.